The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. We began a study on last Sunday concerning the home, and that from the perspective of seeking to cultivate memories of a home that are positive and that are good, and more than just memories of a home that um, just simply had some fun going on in it. There was always entertainment and activities, maybe game nights and all that kind of stuff. Those are wonderful memories and that from God that we experience from time to time in a healthy and loving home. But more importantly, the greatest memories that we may have from home and that is certainly we want to cultivate in our own homes as those who are uh, just members of a home or leaders of a home is memories of a godly home. And so it may be that you came from a good home and you have wonderful childhood memories and that even to the degree of a memory of a godly home, a home which feared God, a home with a solid marriage and a home that everyone accepted their God-given roles in. That's what we talked about last Sunday and that's great. Some are not so fortunate. And so those who are not so fortunate need to have this desire to cultivate a godly home that they did not enjoy and benefit from as they were raised so that their children could have a godly home as well. And those who did come from a godly home should desire, like we talked about this morning, to abound more and more and do even better than what their parents have done in the past. Memories from home are of great importance. We talked about how the home is the fabric of society and even in a more important context, such as this evening, the home is the fabric of the church. So goes the home, so goes the church. And so we're trying to raise children and cultivate a godly home so that that individual grows up, leaves the home, and is a godly person, one who fears God, one who seeks to keep God's commandments, a Christian who is faithful to the Lord and themselves want to cultivate a godly home when the time comes. And we also noted very briefly that those godly homes and those memories of godly homes, they don't just happen. Just because two individuals are Christians does not mean that they will have a godly home. There are homes with Christians in them that are not godly homes, but it takes effort, it takes diligence, it takes vigilance, and it takes, above all else, I think, resolve to do God's will and to do it God's way. Like I mentioned, we looked at the fact that a godly home and a home which will be uh, one with good memories is a God-fearing home. We talked about several things that that included. We also talked about how marriage is the foundation of a healthy and godly home, and so a solid marriage will be remembered if a godly home is remembered and that that marriage must always come first and must be preserved. That means the children don't come between the spouses and that the spouses love each other according to God's will and respect each other according to God's will. Then we also talked about in the evening portion of last Sunday that a godly home where we'll have good memories from will be a home with accepted roles. God has given each and every member of the home a role that they are to accept and follow where the husband is the head and the wife is in submission and the children are obviously obedient to their parents and honor their parents. I think those are very basic things, very important things. Without those things, there will not be the kind of memories of a godly home 
that God wants us to leave our children with and even ourselves with when we reflect on the times that we had a home that was filled and a home that we were leading. But there are other things I think we should consider, and we'll consider three more this evening. I think it's quite obvious that a home which will give good memories that we'll look back on and look back on without any kind of regret and without any kind of sorrow will be a home with an atmosphere of love and respect. And that's not just in the spousal sense where a marriage is only going to thrive with mutual love and respect. I think we talked about that. A home that is godly is going to be a home with a solid marriage, and that requires the love of the husband to the wife as well as the wife to the husband and the respect of the husband to the wife as well as the wife to the husband. Ephesians 5 tells us that very clearly. But it's going to be from the parents to the children and the children to the parents. It's going to be love all around, and it's also going to be respect all around. And this, again, I think is something that must be worked on, that we must abound more and more in kind of following those ideas of this morning even. But we also have to understand that a personal relationship with God is key. And by personal relationship with God, we don't mean what, what, what some in the world would suggest by a personal relationship with God, a personal relationship with Jesus, which is basically, well, my relationship is on my terms and yours may be different terms, but I'll do what I do and you do what you do and we both have a relationship and that's enough. God defines the standard. He defines the parameters of that relationship and how that relationship will thrive and live. And so each and every family member must have that relationship with God, especially as it pertains to a home with love and respect. Each and every family member must have love for God. And it's like with anything else we read in the New Testament, in the Bible as a whole for that matter, that love for God is key to all other facets of God's will. Jesus mentioned that in Matthew 22 when the scribe came to him and said, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? Testing him, mind you. And this is what Jesus said to him in verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. But notice what he says in verse 39, that the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he gives the reason on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. We know from John 14 and verse 15 that loving God means keeping his commandments. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I think that's why he says on these two laws hang all the law and the prophets. That if you're loving God, it means you're keeping his commandments. But then the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Because when you're loving God, you're going to be keeping all of his commandments. Not just the vertical ones, which primarily have to deal with what goes on between you and God, but his commands for our horizontal relationships on earth. And that includes, certainly, the home. And so we need to love God. And if we're loving God, then we're going to seek to accept those roles and all of the implications and specifics that come with it, which includes a love and a respect for all of the members in the family. These things seem to go without saying, but... We all know, I think, in some way and to some degree, that not all homes have love and respect. Not all homes are that fortunate. And it's because not all homes are godly. And so that's, that's something that needs to be worked on. And that love for God is key in order for us to have love for each other in the home. Consider that in a practical manner from Colossians, the third chapter. In the context of Colossians, where Paul is speaking of the preeminence of Christ, that God has placed him first 
that in him will be all things. We see that kind of in a practical manner in chapter 3 and verse 17 when he says, And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's simply saying Christ is number one, preeminence. He comes first. Because he's king, reigning at the right hand of the throne of God, he was raised up. Colossians chapter 3 begins with that. If you are raised with Christ, seek the things which are above where Christ is. He's sitting on the, the right hand of the throne of God. He reigns as king with authority. So whatever we do and whatever we say needs to be by his authority. That's what in the name of the Lord Jesus means. But notice the context continues after it started to talk about how we need to treat each other in the church and put on these holy or these tender mercies, verse 12, and kindness, humility, all of these kinds of things and, and loving one another and having that bond of love, which is the the perfection that it produces, the the bond of perfection. Notice what he starts talking about in verse 18. He says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter toward them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. He begins to talk about bondservants in verse 22. That would have been the common landscape of the home during those Bible times, New Testament times. That's not the case today for us. But those bondservants are going to be fulfilling their, their roles in whatever home they're a part of by doing whatever they do and saying whatever they say in the name of the Lord Jesus. But notice especially what he says in verse 23, which I think is especially connected to the bondservants, but can be connected to all other relationships he just mentioned. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord. And so when there's acts of service that we know we should do within our relationships in the home and we just are reluctant to do them or responsibility that we have to fulfill or a way we know that we're called to act in, it's just not really something we want to do or be at that time because it's not always convenient for us. The Holy Spirit encourages us to do it in the name, in the name of the Lord, meaning you're doing it not simply out of love and respect for that person. That's certainly a weighty part of it, an important part of it, one that is necessary, but you're doing it out of service to the Lord. And in homes where there's dissonance, where there's conflict, where there's friction, if everyone would just step back and not be looking at one another and what each other are doing wrong or just aren't doing at all, and they think about what is my relationship to Christ and how does he want me to treat my family, things will be solved. Problems will go away. Because we'll be following the Lord Jesus. Did you notice there in verse 17, he says, do all in the name of the Lord. And then in verse 18, he talks about the wives submitting to their own husbands. And he says, as is fitting in the Lord. I think every action and every thought and every word that we utter should be preceded by this question. Is it fitting in the Lord? And that'll solve a lot of our problems in the husband and wife relationship and the parent-child relationship, and the child-to-parent relationship, and the siblings relationship, all of those things will be solved with this concept of doing all in the name of the Lord, doing all that is fitting in the Lord. In 1 John chapter 4, we see furthermore that love for God is key, but this is, I think, where a little bit of the respect facet of this point comes in. Love and respect go hand in hand. 
But I also think that there's an obvious difference where an individual can claim to be loving to one in the family and that be true, but the respect is lacking or at least the outward display of that respect is lacking. I think it's important that both are there and the Bible speaks about that. Consider in 1 John 4 and verse 7 when speaking of love, he says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And notice the application. Beloved, if God so loved us in that manner, if he did that for us and demonstrated his love in that way, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I know it's in the context of brethren, dwelling in love and unity within the church, but how much more so those of our own family. In other words, we look at that member of our family and we acknowledge them not just brother or sister or wife or husband or child or parent, but we recognize them as a soul created in the image of God and Christ died for them. And how much respect is due them if Christ and God loved them enough to lay down their lives for him? or for her, or for them. Sometimes we say hurtful things to each other as members of family, whether we know it or not. And sometimes we do hurtful things. Sometimes we act or speak without thinking, and we don't realize the consequences and the the outcomes that will come from this, and, and the lasting pain, the lasting scars that may be inflicted by a word that goes without thought or an action that goes without thought. But if we just sit back and we think a little bit about who that person is in relation to God, I think like with any other relationship, that's going to cultivate a respect for them as a soul created in the image of God. And then that will lead to acts of love and service. In studying this, I was reminded of 1 Corinthians 8 when speaking of the liberty of eating of meats offered to idols and how the Corinthians were treating each other. One individual had this as a liberty and they had that knowledge. And so they took advantage of their brother who was weak in the faith and did not have that confidence in their conscience to eat that meat offered to idols. And then they were causing that brother to stumble. And this is what Paul said of that person. In First Corinthians 8 and verse 11, because of your knowledge, shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? You're causing this brother to perish in their souls. But Christ died for them just as much as he died for you. And so view all relationships, especially in the home, through that lens. And I think that's really what this golden rule we talk about from time to time is about. In Matthew 7 and verse 12, Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Treat each other the way you yourselves would want to be treated. With this comes the understanding of a need to deny self. If we're to be loving to one another in our families, and if we're to respect one another in our families, it's going to come with a humility of self-denial. This is what Jesus calls his disciples to. In Mark 8 and verse 34, when he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And again, it all points back to God and Christ. We're denying ourselves to first and foremost follow them. But when we deny ourselves to follow them, it's going to open up room for those who are our loved ones. This would include estimating the needs of the other members of our family 
as greater than our own. This is what Jesus did when he came to earth to die for our sins. And he's given as an example in Philippians 2 and verse 5, but that example is following the fundamental and foundational command and expectation in the previous verses. And then he's given an example of the greatest act of humility and servitude. Notice in Philippians 2 and verse 3, Paul writes, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. I'm not sure of the exact statistics, but I know that probably I'm pretty confident in the number one cause for divorce is um, unfaithfulness, fornication. But I think that probably the second cause for divorce is finances. You think about how many times we've heard of homes where the father, the husband just goes out and spends whatever he wants from his paycheck without a thought about the wife and kids at home. Or a mother who takes out a credit card and just spends and spends and spends and incurs all of this debt that now is a burden on the shoulders of the family and of the husband. And, and how much conflict and, and friction that that causes and how dangerous that is to a, a home and its health. Well, what if everyone just had this idea of self-denial and considering each other's interests as better than our own, as more important than our own? That means that what I want is not as important as what you need or want. And if everyone's doing that, then everyone's going to be taken care of. But that requires self-denial, not looking out for your own interests, verse four, but also the interests of others. I think Jesus was the perfect example of this, and he did it all through his life to the cross. In John 19 and verse 25, we remember that there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold, your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. At that time, he wasn't thinking about his interest as he was bleeding and dying on the cross. He was thinking about and worrying about how his mother would be provided for when he left this earth. And he looked at John, the disciple whom he loved. And he said, behold, your mother. And to her and said, woman, behold, your son. And that just goes to show that he always had his mind set on the interests of others and their needs. And that will obviously inevitably lead to servitude. I think that a home, a family, is much like we see the description of the body of Christ in the New Testament. There are different members with different roles, as we talked about last Sunday, and those roles must be fulfilled and submitted to in the fear of God. But when we think about it as a functioning body, we will furthermore be moved to serve one another in the homes that we're a part of. In Romans 12 and verse 4, Paul writes, as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. And he talks about some spiritual gifts. But the point of the matter is not all have the same roles in homes. And the parents should recognize that with the children and the children for the parents. And then fulfill those created roles that God has given to us. And so a wife is never to get into the position of authority. And the husband is never to assume the role of, of subjection or abdicate his own role of authority and leadership. Uh, the parents should never obviously let the child be in that position of command and authority. Those aren't the roles God has given us. But if we have this understanding of being one, mem one body and members individually, we understand that each member holds an important role and needs to function as it was designed to function, use what it was given 
to use, and ultimately with the heart of servitude out of love and respect. And so a home with good memories, a home that is godly, will be a home with love and respect. I think also, though, a home with good memories to be left with children and that we can look back on with positive thoughts is going to be a home with good communication. I think it's obvious in any facet of life that good communication is a key to any relationship. It could be a wife and a husband. I think that's even more obvious than any others. But it could also be a boss and an employee. It can be co-workers. It could be friends. It could be a parent and a child, a child to a parent. It could be any relationship. If there's not good communication, that relationship will not thrive and it will certainly not be healthy. And this is one of the key things within the home. If relationship is broken down and it's not effective, it's not thought through, then the home is not going to be effective and it won't be healthy. Consider that everyone should be inclined to listen. That should be a first and foremost thought. Do not speak before you think, but think before you speak. I think we see that biblically in James 1 and verse 19. When in the context of being doers of the word of God, it saves us, so we need to not just be hearers, but doers. He first says, so then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. We've heard the saying that God gave us two ears and one mouth. Maybe we should listen twice as much as we speak. Be swift to hear and slow to speak. Being swift to hear and slow to speak will give us time to put our words together and our thoughts together and not speak when the other person is still speaking because you don't know all that they've said. And so you've got to be willing to to listen and hear all that is trying to be communicated. I think sometimes in families we think we can read each other's minds because we know each other so well, but I think it's foolish to think that. The Bible says be swift to hear. You may not know what they're saying. You may know what they're saying. But wisdom tells us to just be quiet and listen until they're through so you really do understand what they're trying to communicate. And then your speaking that comes second, it will be more cultivated with thought and reason. But also, he says, be slow to wrath. We should listen with the intent of not allowing ourselves to be filled with wrath. Even if it's something we don't want to hear, we should have the predisposition to hear whatever is being said with the understanding that I will not be mad. I will not be angry. I will not, rather, more importantly and accurately, be one with ungodly wrath. Consider the words of Jesus when he talked about how we're to hear the gospel in Luke 8 and verse 18. This is what he said about the importance of hearing, not just the importance of hearing generally, but how we're to hear. Therefore, take heed how you hear. Whoever has to him more will be given, and whoever does not have even what he seems to have will be taken from him. Take heed how you hear. I think it's a common form of jesting when, you know, people talk about how husbands just don't understand their wives, and they say, I heard what you said, and they may say, well, you heard, but you weren't listening, and that's true, and that's a part of this concept of communication. Sometimes we're hearing what is being said, but we're not really hearing what is being said. Take heed how you hear. In this context of hearing the gospel, he's talking about those who would hear what they want to hear in the gospel, or they wouldn't hear what they don't want to hear. They'd stop their ears to the parts of the gospel they just don't want to hear, but instead hear the truth with the intent of actually hearing the truth. Not just parts of it, but the whole of it. 
Not just what you want to hear or not what you not don't want to hear, but hear everything because it's all important. In other words, in the family, we should always want to know what is actually trying to be communicated. Not listen just to hear the basic surface level of those words communicated, but what is that person actually trying to say? And so if there's a, a misunderstanding, even though you did listen carefully and you think that might not be right, that must not be true. There should not just be the assumption that they meant this when they could have just well meant something else. There should be the desire to actually hear and understand what is trying to be communicated. How many problems could be avoided if that's always what we were thinking when we were speaking to one another within the home? And I think this requires a transparency and a willingness for each and every member of the family to be vocal, vocal about what they mean when they're communicating one to another, vocal about what they don't yet understand. Something's missing. Explain it a different way. I just don't get what you mean. And then there's the other side of those things where when a person doesn't get what you mean, there's that understanding and that willingness to further vocalize and be a little more transparent about what you're trying to communicate. Communication is so vital to relationships. And I think that really listening also would include that vocalization. Consider Jesus in Luke 2 and verse 46. It says that it was that after three days, his parents found him in the temple when they, they lost him, didn't know where he was, remember? When he was 12 years old and he was sitting in the midst of the teachers, both, both listening to them and asking questions. You know, all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Part of listening sometimes requires the asking of questions. Someone may tell me something that I don't quite understand. I didn't really get what they were trying to communicate to me. And what I shouldn't do is just assume that they meant what I thought they meant. If there's any doubt, there should be questions asked. And no one should ever shy away from that. And no one should be, ever be, be made to feel guilty about asking questions and following up. And so that communication is vital to a healthy relationship. And sometimes it means being vocal, being transparent about not understanding or, or about how you feel with a certain situation or else the other just will not know. Consider in 1 Peter 3 and verse 7, particularly in a context dealing with the husbands and wives. I think it also can be applied in other relationships. After he mentions the wives and their modesty and submission and such, in verse 7, he says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, that is the wives, with understanding. Give an honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. He speaks of the need for husbands to dwell with the wives in a way that is understanding. And I think he gives the reason for that in the very following words. As to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, he's saying that Women are different than men. Weaker vessel would indicate several things, I think, especially with regard to the flesh, not the spirit, because he goes on to say that you're equal. You're heirs together of the grace of life. He's not saying that women just are weaker than men spiritually. He's saying that it's quite obvious that physically speaking, scientifically proven, women are the weaker vessel. And so the husbands with all of that authority, all that power, all of that strength physically and through their roles as the leaders, they should dwell with them with understanding, but it requires transparency again and vocalization on both parts. If the husband is to dwell with understanding when he doesn't understand, there needs to be a vocalization of that misunderstanding. Explain it to me better. Let me know exactly what it is that you mean. And then the wife should vocalize 
Furthermore, if that request is there, so that there will be understanding. And then when both have their own opinions and their own thoughts or their own requests or their own needs, even if we do not understand it personally because we're the, of the opposite sex or, or a child is not a parent and a parent is not a child or a sister is not a brother and a brother is not a sister, whatever the difference is, is in that relationship, there should be the desire to understand that that's just what that person needs. I don't have to get it all the time. Dwell with understanding. You know, I can't stand the portrayal of relationships sometimes in movies and TV shows, especially in the romantic sense where you've got this girl and this boy who aren't communicating well, and what they're doing is what we might describe as playing games. They may be playing the two different games. Instead of just saying what they mean, it's like, this person should know what I mean. I don't think that's biblical. I think the Bible tells us in our relationships there's a need for transparency, understanding, listening, and thoughtful vocalizing of our thoughts. We cannot expect us to have good relationships if the communication is not there. And there must be the willingness to communicate in such a way, to understand in such a way, and that through that transparency and being vocal about our thoughts. But I want us to consider also the more important facet of this idea of communication in regard to our spiritual health. We talked about how we're all to be God-fearing and what that would require is holding each other accountable in part in the first lesson as we cultivate a God-fearing atmosphere. But sometimes there are things that we're not going to be able to see. And it may be things which we're continuing to struggle with. But a family that has cultivated that God-fearing atmosphere and accountability along with this idea of love and respect and good communication is going to open up the doors for a comfortableness with coming forward with the needs they have, with saying, I'm struggling in this area. You may not know this mom and dad, or you may not know this spouse, or you may not know this children, or whatever it may be, I need help, I need encouragement, or I'm struggling in this regard. There needs to be transparency. That's why I think we see in James 5 and verse 16, this command, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effect of fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. We need to be comfortable of doing that. But then along these lines of communication, when we do decide to speak, we're, we're slow to speak, but we're, we're swift to hear and we're slow to wrath. But when we do eventually speak, those words should be chosen carefully always and always with this foundation we talked about before with love and respect, is it fitting in the Lord to say this? Is it going to be beneficial to say this? It should always be with positive intent. That does not mean that it will always be positive in its nature, but it will be with positive intent. A lot of times when a parent tells a child something, it's negative. You shouldn't do that or getting on to the parent or the child or whatever it may be. And that's a negative concept inherently, but it's with positive intent. And so where fathers are going to have to do such, they're not to provoke their children. And it's the same way with any other relationship. They should always be words with positive intent. In Colossians 4 and verse 6, this is speaking about evangelism with those who are without. But notice he says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. And so this is in the context of redeeming the time with those who are outside trying to spread the gospel. And and have your speech seasoned. Make sure that it's tactful. Make sure that it's 
it's good and positive so that you can answer them in the meekness and fear of 1 Peter 3 and verse 15. But how much more so in our relationships with one to another, in those relationships that are so close, how much more careful should we be to make sure our words are seasoned? In Ephesians 4 and verse 29, Paul puts it this way. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impart grace to the hearers. That should be our thought. Before we speak, is this something that will benefit who I'm speaking to? Often parents tell their children, I think, that if you don't have anything good to say, don't say anything at all. And maybe all of us should take those words of advice to heart as well. Also in Matthew 12 and verse 36, we see the importance of choosing our words carefully. When Jesus said, I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give account of it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. There have been times where I think all of us have said something, and as soon as the words leave the mouth, we regret it. We can't take them back. Those are idle words. Those are words that didn't have much thought before them. Those were words that certainly were not seasoned with salt and were not to impart grace to the hearers. God will judge us for those words. We'll give an account for those words. And so we need to communicate effectively. And thirdly and finally, a home that will produce and cultivate good memories that is a godly home is going to be a home with discipline and training. And I think we can understand that. I think that at the time, as children are disciplined, whether it's the parents disciplining their children or the children being disciplined, it's never a, a very fun experience. Parents don't like to do it and children don't like to receive it. But me speaking from experience as a child that has left the home, I look back on those times of discipline and while I understand they weren't fun at the time, I appreciate them. Those are good memories because I've seen people my age who still act like 12-year-olds. And maybe even in the context of grown-up events, maybe at a job, but they're, they're being dishonest or, or they're throwing fits in their own grown-up way or they're treating their coworkers wrong or they're not showing respect to their employers, whatever it may be, they're acting like a child because it was never disciplined out of them. And so those are good memories. And I think that it's important for parents especially to recognize that so that they don't neglect that area of parenting. It's very important. Because the child is not going to, to resent you for them. Maybe for a little bit, but when it really comes down to it, that will be a good memory. A home with structure, a home with discipline. Once again, this is the father's calling. It's not to say the mother is not a part of this at all. I think we mentioned that before in previous lessons in this study. But it is the father's primary role. In Ephesians 6 and verse 4, Paul says, you fathers do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Don't provoke them. And it goes with the points of communication we just spoke about. When you're training your children and you're disciplining your children, you're bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It's not in ways that will lead your children to be wrathful and provoked and, and act out against you. And that's not to say they never will, but it's not because you said something wrong. And so there needs to be some, some careful thought put into the way the children are trained and disciplined and taught. Do not provoke your children. But I want us to especially focus on those two words. They're really synonyms in the Greek. R.C. Trench and his synonyms of the New Testament puts them together. 
and has a word study on them. Training and admonition, what does that mean? That word training is from the Greek word padaya, and Art and Gingrich say it is the act of providing guidance for responsible living, upbringing, training, and instruction. But I want us to understand even furthermore the heart of this idea of padaya or padia training. It's not simply teaching, and it's not simply directing, but it is correcting through corporal punishment, through physical punishment. It's inherent within the word. In fact, in Hebrews, the 12th chapter, this word translated into training in Ephesians 6 and verse 4 is translated into chastening in Hebrews 12. He says in verse 5, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons, a father-son relationship. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. And notice what that chastening is paired up with in verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chases and scourges every son whom he receives. He goes on to talk about how we had human fathers who chastened us and we respected them. And then in verse 11, he says, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It's not enough to tell a child to not do something or to do something. That's not training. It may be instructing, but it's not training. Any more than it's training a dog to tell the dog, don't do this or don't do that. You've got to discipline the dog. And we talk about training dogs. We talk about training animals. And I understand a child is of so much more value and importance, but training is training is training. And the training is in regard to God's word. But when that word is mis, uh, is, is disobeyed or is not understood, and so there's mistakes, there needs to be that positive reinforcement through chastening of that negative behavior. In other words, spanking lets the child know not to do what they just did. And they may not understand exactly why they shouldn't have done it, but they understand through that spanking that they shouldn't have done it. And we also understand by that the immediacy that it should come with, so there can be that connection. That other word, admonition, is from the Greek word nothesia, and it's a compound word from nos is mind, and tithemi meaning to put. And so it literally means a putting in mind, as Vine defines it. And we can understand this more along the lines of the instruction. We put into the mind of the child the word of God. This is what God wants you to do. And then it's coupled with the training in the sense of if you do not do what God wants you to do, what I've told you to do, then there are going to be consequences. And those cannot be separated. A child will not be successfully raised without training and admonition. Vine says something interesting about this synonym, though. Nostea, he said, is the training by word, whether of encouragement or, if necessary, by reproof or remonstrance. In contrast to this, the synonymous word, padea, stresses training by act, though both words are used each in each respect. And so we informed about what is correct or incorrect with the following act of physical discipline afterward. The New American Standard Bible renders it this way, discipline and instruction of the Lord. There needs to be instruction, but there needs to be a discipline as well. And I think it's pretty obvious why. The child is not always going to understand, and, and we can't always reason with children. There will be a, an age where they reach, where they have a better ability to understand, and, and they're more logical, and there's more common sense there. But until that time, they're not going to understand the why of our, our commands or our restrictions. And that's why there needs to be the follow-up of physical discipline, because they know not to do something. Because if I do this thing, then I'll get spanked over here. 
And as they mature in age, that deeper understanding will come if the instruction follows. I think there's a lot of deep wisdom in the way that God has commanded us to raise children. And a godly home will be a godly home that has discipline and training. Consider this as well, though, what we see there in Ephesians 6 and verse 4. He says, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. We could say, well, we're to train them, we're to admonish them, we're to discipline them, we're to instruct them. But, you know, I'm going to turn over to here to this physical resource, this secular resource, this psychological book of how you raise children and how the minds of children work. And it may seem very simple. It may seem too simple for some to accept. Well, you're just oversimplifying it. But what God says is the best way to train a child is to do what God says. I'm going to just go by the Bible. If the Bible says it, I'm going to do it. And someone may reason, well, my child's different or, or this situation is different. Well, no, it's not because God can see everything. And he had the Bible written through his inspiration of the spirit that is timeless. It's enduring forever. And it is always relevant. And so if God says this is how children are raised successfully, then, then we're going to listen to God. That training and that admonition, that discipline and that instruction needs to be in accordance with the Lord, of the Lord, according to God's word. Is it fitting in the Lord again from Ephesians or Colossians 3 and verse 17? And that physical punishment is laced throughout Scripture, a physical response to, dis, to, to, to rebellion and disobedience. Consider that this is part of how a parent loves their children in Proverbs 13 and verse 24, it says that he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him properly. Someone will say, you don't love your child because you're, you're spanking them. And psychology will tell us that's not the best way to do it. God's word says, if you love them, you will not spare the rod. And that's not a figure of speech simply to say that you're going to correct them in some way. It's talking about physical punishment. It may be a paddle. It may be a belt. It may be your hand. It may be a switch. But there is physical consequences to their disobedience. And that comes from love. It's what we might describe as tough love. But there has to be that reasonableness to do it and consistency in doing so. Consider Proverbs 19 and verse 18. It says, chasten your son while there is hope and do not set your heart on his destruction. He's saying that you've got the time you have. Discipline your child while there's time, while there's hope. There is hope for a child who is young and not yet completely molded and set in his ways. And you can discipline that child so that that child grows up to be a God-fearing individual. But there comes a point in time when there's no hope left. If you wait until the child is a teenager, there's not going to be any hope left. They're by, pretty much by that time, if they haven't been, been raised in a certain way, that's, they're going to be set in their ways. He says, chasten your son while there's hope. Don't set his heart on destruction and do it out of love. Following that in Proverbs 22 and verse 15, wisdom says that foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child, but the rod of correction will drive it far from him. It goes back to what we talked about before with training and admonition. You can't reason with a child. You can't reason with a toddler. I know it because I have several toddler nieces and my brother has got one that has a very strong will and she doesn't always understand why she can't do this or why she has to do this. And there's constantly the need for spanking that child. And what my brother's doing in doing so is driving that foolishness from that child. If the child is left to themselves, they raise 
they, they grow up and that foolishness is still there. But this physical discipline drives it far from them. You don't want to have foolish adult children. And therefore comes the physical discipline. Proverbs 23 and verse 13 says, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. I think we need to step back and stop being so dramatic as a society. But we need to be careful about it as children of God as well. A spanking will not kill your child. God's not saying beat your children. God's not saying abuse your children. God's saying lovingly discipline your children and it's going to hurt. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us that. But it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. In having that correction for the child and having that chastening, you actually deliver his soul from the grave, from Sheol. You allow that child a better chance at life and allow him or her to escape many sorrows and aches. Lastly, in Proverbs 29 and verse 15, the rod and rebuke give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Too many children are left to themselves, even though they have a home with a mother and a father that are always there. And they're left to themselves because the mother and the father let that child raise themselves. That's what he's saying. Wisdom and the way it works obviously primarily comes from God's word, but through God's word, we have the understanding giving to us that the gray hair is full of wisdom you get wisdom from people who have already been through it and the parents are that role in the home and without that correction and instruction that child will not be raised to be wise and knowledgeable but the instruction followed with the physical discipline will ensure that child a better future ultimately in the service of the lord all of this requires vigilance it requires vigilance to find opportunities to teach and then also, obviously, to correct things that are amiss. In Deuteronomy 6 and verse 4, we read this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. When you rise up, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates. He's not saying that literally these things are the times when you teach and these things are the things you should do to your physical home. He's speaking in a way that shows in a comprehensive sense of life that every opportunity you see to teach your child, you take advantage of that opportunity. It may be when you wake up in the morning or it may be when you're walking by the way. It may be when you're laying down at night, but you find those opportunities. It may be when a child comes home from a friend's house and saw something that was different from their own home in the norm. And you teach them why we do the things that we do. We teach them why the Lord says to do this. And this idea of being a, a sign on your hand and frontlets between your eyes goes back to the beginning of a home that has a cultivated atmosphere of fearing God. Is God always at the forefront? Is he as frontlets between our eyes? Is that something that we have a relationship with, with the children in our homes, that it's about God and his instruction is our house characterized by the fear of the Lord and his word? We need to have vigilance to find those opportunities because they're everywhere and they're abundant. But also we need to have vigilance to notice the decline of a child. In chapter 6 of Deuteronomy as well, in verse 12, he warns the children of Israel, then beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And he'll go on to talk about the children as well again when 
The children ask about the commandments and the father tells the child because the Lord delivered us from Egypt and this is for our good always and it'll be righteousness to us. And so this has to do with the entire nation, but it certainly would have to do with those children that are trying to be raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Have they started to forget the Lord? Not just in the sense of actual forgetting or remembering, but but in their actions. Are they showing a a lack of diligence themselves in serving God and doing what mom and dad have told them to do. That includes things like getting Bible lessons done and, and being ones who study regularly and being ready for maybe family Bible studies, maybe changes in behavior, changes in demeanor. Those things take diligence to notice and vigilance to notice. And so a child may stop doing their lesson or may stop doing what they were commanded to do, but a parent should be able to see that and correct it as soon as they see it. And it takes notice. It takes vigilance. And lastly and importantly, it takes vigilance to notice the negative influences in the child's life. It says that a child left to himself will be one who brings shame to his mother, but the rod and rebuke give wisdom. A parent can't be naive to think that the child will always make the best decisions with friends, with events, with education, with with activities, with environments and habits. But the parent needs to be vigilant to make sure there are no negative influences. In 1 Corinthians 15.33, Paul says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. There may be friends of a child that they shouldn't be around anymore. And a parent has the responsibility and duty of seeing that negative influence. There may be things that they're doing, maybe even just simple forms of of entertainment. Maybe it's video games too much. Maybe it's TV too much, whatever it may be, something that's just not very healthy and it's leading to to a lacking nature in their spiritual upbringing and growth and development. There needs to be vigilance about those evil companies that are corrupting those good habits. Obviously, there are a lot of other things we could talk about in regard to the home, but I hope that this has been beneficial to each and every one of us. Is something that we should have as our goal to cultivate a home with good memories, a home that those who are leaders of the home as a mother and a father, as a wife and a husband can look back in time after things are all said and done. And they can look back in time, not with regret, but with happiness, thinking about the good memories, thinking about the fact that they have trusted in God and done it his way. And we should always want to leave the children with those memories of a God-fearing home. They may not appreciate it right now, But if there's persistence and endurance, and if there's trust in Jesus, then they will be good memories in the end. And that child will be left better off than they were before and will grow up to be those who fear God as well. If you're here this evening and have not obeyed the gospel, we want to give you the opportunity to do so. And like I said last Sunday, become a part of the greatest family of all. That's the family of God, where the father of our family never fails, never is reluctant to do anything for us, never neglects us in any way, but will always be there for us. But you've got to be baptized into the body of Christ in order to have that privilege of being called his child. If you have obeyed the gospel, but there's any other spiritual need we can assist you with, we invite you as well to come forward while we stand and sing the song that was selected.